In our first two narrative episodes, we reached back over a hundred years to find two partnerships, separate from each other, but ultimately each forming one side of the world beneath. The entrepreneurial partnership of Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano that organized the criminal underworld, and the marriage of Elizabeth and William Friedman, who created the vision and methodology for organizing intelligence agencies. History matters, especially when we know it well enough to learn from it and apply it to our current moment. History provides a context that can be a shining beacon for us to navigate our darkest struggles. So I knew exactly who I wanted to talk to with this series once I'd set down the first two big pieces of its history to try and first apply it to our world today. My friend and fellow writer, Greg Oliar. Yeah, so I got a little, um, I thought it was fascinating that tweet I did. I know, the response, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, you you texted me about it. it, so... But I was just like, dude, I've just sort of like, I'm just sort of like setting some boundaries, right? Because, and also I felt like it was a reminder to everybody just, um, you know, stop attacking each other. Because I do think we're going into this. Yeah, yeah. New phase, right? Of this narrative warfare where we've got to focus on the GOP not getting away with all of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, they installed Donald and now he's gone. And so they're, they're sort of hive minding the reins of this thing, right? They're all, they're all, they're all rising up to do things like pass these corrupt Georgia bills and can't really see what, where they're really going with it. But I don't think that it's chaotic for them. I think they know what they're doing. They always have. Yeah, And so when you turn to Twitter and you've got people, this toxic little corner. Yeah. So it's like, I, I write, I, I write this little thing about, you know, there's folks that all they're doing with their Twitter time is tracking other people, <laughs> like yeah. monitoring what other people are, you know, in big accounts like us, like, what are you liking? What are you retweeting? What does it mean? Oh, it's a conspiracy. They're, they're, it's insane. And and they have some of these people have really big followings and some have blue checks. And so I put that tweet, that little thread together. I'm like, look, you're not equipped to do this counter off that <laughs> you're doing. Yeah. You're, you're not mentally there. And I have just done this um, interview with with Unc, with Big Chair. And by the way, you could call me by my first name and not worry about it. But it's probably best if we keep keep the LB going. OK, so I. I had just for just so people's they could keep track of it all. But I had just talked to Big Chair about, you know, folks that have really don't have the discipline or infrastructure around them. Or they don't to do a job like that, you know, like what <laughs> what our our security professionals do that are in the space of signals. Um, and uh, And he was like, yeah, yeah, they probably shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> so it's like, anyway, okay, that's my side. But but the funny thing was, was that everyone thought I was talking about the other person that whatever whoever they're in a fight with. And yeah, it was like yeah. 
I'm not talking about any of you. <laughs> there was all this assumption of, oh, LB's on it. I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Right. It's so, but clearly you're engaging in something that you shouldn't be engaging in. And maybe you should just hold up a mirror. Maybe I am talking about you. Maybe I'm not talking about your perceived enemy. Maybe I'm talking about you. So it was one of those funny moments where I, I just sort of laughed all day at that. I, I thought, okay, this is evolving really strangely. Well, usually something like that is predicated on something that you've read or, and I was away yesterday. I wasn't paying attention to what was happening. Uh, so I wanted to see, make sure that I'd, that I wasn't missing anything and that you were okay and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was fine. I just, uh, I just want everyone to focus on the goal again. Um, and by everyone, I just mean my followers. So like, let's just focus on where we're going and uh, what, why we're, why we're doing this? Because I think I don't know if you're there, but I'm there. I've, I'm not really interested in keeping doing this <laughs> Twitter movement. You know, I'm, I'm really just doing it because it is the main communication channel now, um, and so I don't want to close off a communication channel. But I'm much more interested in the content that I'm doing here, right? That we're going to talk is, about it's today. much more fun. It's much more fun content. Um, but no, we're part of the info. You know. I'm writing a thing for tomorrow that, or for Tuesday, that we're, it, it's not just an information war. It, it is a civil war. It's a new civil war and it's being fought in the information space. It's a narrative war. It's not a war with, with casualties right. in that sense, but it's no less important and we have to win and we can't not be on Twitter and, fa and, and everywhere. We have to be where the battles are. We have to, we, we don't have any choice. So yeah, that's how I, it is. I, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think Joe is right. We're in the battle for the soul of this nation. Yeah. And he said that right after Charlottesville, that very night, um, where they were marching with their tiki torches. And he's right. He's right. Yeah. I yeah. think the realization that I've had the last couple of days, and I think I knew this deep down, but it really hit me, is that as we've discussed, it isn't just Trump. It's, it's, it's everything beneath him. And my analogy is that he's like the shanker on the glands. You know, it's unsightly to have this sore, but removing it doesn't cure the late stage syphilis that has infected the body politic and made half the population mad because that's what's happened. And I don't know what it's going to take to, to cure this thing, but it, something's got to give. We can't continue this way as a society. We just can't. We can't have two sets of facts. Maybe Dominion is just going to take down Fox News and that'll be it. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. All right. So let's review what we're doing here and who you are. So I'm going to introduce you as my good friend, yes. Greg Oliar. Yeah. And novelist, writer, Twitter raconteur, <laughs> uh, podcaster now. You do. Yeah. I think your podcast is amazing. Greg, I, I just let I, I sometimes you'll text me in the morning because we're on a time difference and I'm one of your friends that's up at the crack of dawn right. before dawn. I'm always up around four or five o'clock and you're always walking and no one else is up in your in your land and no one else is up in my land. So we often like talk early, early in the morning and you'll send me texts. I'm walking. You want to talk just to catch up and talk, digest the day, digest what we're doing. And now, actually, that space has been taken over on certain days for me listening to your podcast. So I'll just say, no, I'm listening to my podcast. I can't talk to you right now. Um, it just is, it's so fun. There's so much levity in it. So I do, 
you know, I'm, I'm plugging it, but not plugging it. I, it really is the truth. It's just, it's my favorite podcast. Thank you. Um, and so that's Prevail. It's not Prevail Go, right? That's the, that's no, the Twitter. That's, handle. that's just the Twitter handle and the Facebook handle, even though we don't like Facebook and we don't, we encourage you not to be on Facebook, but if you are on Facebook, got a Facebook page. Yeah. It's there on Facebook. So, uh, and we'll, we'll circle back around to that at the end too. make sure everybody knows where to find you. But the big thing that you also are that gets buried um, in your titles and all of your accomplishments, however, it always comes up in your writing, is you're pretty pretty damn good historian. You really know a lot about history. You know a lot about how things formed all the way back to the Roman era. You have some eras that you are actually uh, specialize in, I feel like, where you go, yeah, this was back in that time. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that so people get a sense of why you love history so much, why for you, reaching back in time helps to provide context for the current moment that we're in now. And uh, for me, why it's so important for us to keep laying down the history, specifically around the moment that we're in, the things that, that built up to this moment uh, that don't get told and why we feel there's a need to tell them now so that we can deal with this uh, narrative war that we're in and we can prevail. Thank you for that introduction. It's very nice. History is just really important. I mean, unless we know where we came from and what shared experiences we've had as a as a you know, a population of people on this planet, what can we know? We're doomed. It's, it's, it's the old line, you know, those who are ignorant of history, you're doomed to repeat it. And the best way to understand history is to go back and read. I like to re-examine my own understanding of certain events and eras and stuff. So I like, and I've always liked books that are sort of these sweeping uh, historical books that go back and look at a period through a particular lens. For example, Fantasyland by Kurt Anderson, who's the guy that used to write for Spy Magazine. Brilliant guy, fantastic book. His book, the thesis of it is that Americans by nature and by the, by the fact of who we are, white Americans, he means really, European Americans, are brought up to be gullible. We're drawn from people that moved to this country because they believed the bullshit that this was the land of paradise and that you weren't going to come here and, and, you know, get killed by the natives or starve to death trying to set up your colony or whatever. People believe that the streets were paved with gold and this and that, and they all came here. So in America, we have this fascination with fantasy and, and, and good spin and believing things optimistically. It's not always a bad thing. There's a lot of optimism, but it also means that we're susceptible to stories that people tell us that are maybe not true. And this book goes through the whole period of, of American history through that lens from early period until now. So all the stuff that he's talking about, you know about. We know this happened this date, this happened that date, but it's interesting to view it through that lens. Another book that does this is uh, These Truths by Jill Lepore, which I'm reading now. This is a big, thick book by a great writer, brilliant woman, writes for The New Yorker. And she's going through and looking at sort of a history of the United States based on the Constitution and the documents. And the way she has it framed, it's sort of this race between 
white Americans in the Constitution and black Americans, you know, slaves, and how they have achieved their freedom and the inherent hypocrisy and the push and pull in what was going on, where these Jefferson and Madison stood up and, oh, we, we're being oppressed by this tyrant George III. We're being treated like slaves. Let me go back to my plantation and you know, <laughs> with the slaves. Yeah. Like it, it's such, such a, a profound hypocrisy. Yeah. And they were aware of it. Most of them were aware of it. And how they reconciled it is fascinating. And I tend to think, and I think it's taught, American history is taught that everything was fine. But then slavery got kind of bad around the time of the Civil War. But then the Civil War happened and then everything was fine again. That's sort of the history. And we we really whitewash the founding fathers, especially. We don't mm -hmm. like to think of George Washington as being someone who owned slaves, which he did. Uh, I think he freed them after he died, which was something that some people did, but he did own them. Like one of the characters in the Jill Lepore book is one of Washington's slaves who went on to, I think he went to like Sierra Leone and he was involved with the revolution in Sierra Leone. So there's these parallel uh, stories that go on there. We don't like to think of Thomas Jefferson who wrote the Declaration of Independence as being a guy who not only owned slaves, but raped his slaves and had children with his slaves, but he did. This is a guy who many people look at as one of the, the, the guiding lights of democracy and the Republic. And he was a bad person, a, you know, pretty, pretty objectively. So, and so it goes throughout American history because as you and I have discussed many times, we have not as a country ever gone back and really absolved ourselves of these sins. We've never dealt with the sins of the country, the twin sins of first, we came here and displaced and killed a lot of the Native Americans who massacred, yeah. Uh, whether whether by in blood or by bringing in diseases or whatever, there was a there was a genocide that happened. I mean, for all intents and purposes, we can call it what we will, but that's what happened. And then the slave trade, which is just awful by any objective measure. Blacks were brought from Africa to here to as as property it's it's so hard to wrap your head around it i think in in, in this day and age how, what that was that that existed and it wasn't that long ago wasn't and, that long ago and slavery has existed in various forms throughout history there were slaves in rome there were slaves in greece this and that but the slavery that happened here was in many ways worse because it was a straight up, usually in Rome, it would be, we conquered this country and we're enslaving the people that we conquered. And there was a lot of, um, I'm in debt, so I'm going to be enslaved to you until the debt is freed and that sort of thing. This was, we see these people as less than and as property, and we're going to bring them here and force them to work for us for nothing. And that's how the American economy originally thrived on the backs of slaves. Yep. And it's not something that we think about, I think. I don't think it's something that as a society we're comfortable thinking about, talking about or doing anything about. We're not I think well, when we do, especially when uh for the Americans where that is in their family. Um that 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 uh, victimizations in their family. 
I feel like when, when, and this is so off of what, what the episode was, but it does come back around to, to this episode. So interesting. Um, when the family members speak up and say, and that are still living with, and we all are still living with the, with the vestiges of that grave sin. We really are. Um, and they speak up about it. Everyone gets sort of shamed <laughs> and, and shamed in a way I feel there's that very hostile shaming that comes in of, well, you can't hold me responsible for something that, you know, I wasn't even born yet. It's like, well, yeah. <laughs> Do you have wealth that came from that? Okay. Um, did you, did you, are you benefiting from it because of it, it set up a status for who you just are because of how you came into the world? Uh, yeah, you are. And uh, there is this real big movement to, uh, and it gets that horrible term. I don't like that term, that woke term on it. But uh, and I don't like it, guys, because it's so it's too simplistic. Um, and and people will say, "Oh, I'm woke," and and they're not. And it's it's very frustrating. Uh, so that it's this is part of what's at the underpinning of every fracture right now that's being exploited. And every division that's pulling us apart. And what was behind our now president, Joe Biden, saying we're in a battle for the soul of this nation. This is it. It is all about, and it's too simple to call it race. It's about that sin. It's yeah, about yeah, that good sin. Point. Even the term, even the term woke is being weaponized. Yeah. And this is this is something that's important because. A lot of what animates MAGA, I think, it's not white supremacy. I think that is also simplistic as much as this idea, this wrong idea that now because white people feel like they're getting less than they maybe they did because, because we're trying to correct horrible injustices that were done in the country, that that is somehow wrong for, for the white people now. And I'll give you an example from my personal life, okay? And it's very easy for white men, especially, to go into this line of thinking. When I was applying to colleges back in the, in the early 90s, there was lots of opportunities at colleges for uh, people of color, right? That was just something that colleges were doing recognizing that, hey, for the first 200 years we were here, we didn't let anybody in at all unless they were white white men. Maybe we should, you know, make a push to expand the, uh, the uh, educational opportunity for more people, which is a good thing. But if you're an individual white guy at that time, it's very easy to say to yourself, well, what about me? What did I do? Da, da, da. So that, that narrative, that it, it's a self-pitying narrative. It's a victim narrative. Well, I'm now the victim of this thing. I'm the victim of something that happened that I had no control over. So you see what I mean? It's a whining grievance thing, but it's, it's not a grievance, real. But it's, it's not, not real because real. nothing is being taken away from you. Well, you're, not, you're not having anything taken away from you. It's right. just other people are coming into the space. That's yes, it. But my point is, it's very easy to weaponize this and to yeah. animate it because it takes a certain level of sophistication of your intellect to understand it. 
and to understand, first of all, why it's necessary, and second of all, why it benefits society in general. Even the people, even the individuals who may at that moment feel like they are being victimized and wronged. And I think the right, they know this, the MAGA people know this, and they push those buttons because they know somebody who's dumb is just not going to understand it if we tell them it's okay. I think it requires a certain emotional intelligence more, I think, than intellectual, because it requires someone to be mature enough to take take us take a break take a moment and self-reflect and so you could have people who are very very smart that don't get this won't get it and want and are diving and leaning in to the grievance yes um oh my god i just remembered my dream <laughs> okay oh my god this is on my dream and then we're going to get to elizabeth but so this is part of it somehow. I don't know how. I'm going to share my dream with you guys. Okay. I, because I, Greg and I had this scheduled early in the morning. I fell back asleep. I overslept. And then you sent me a text. They were like, are we doing this? The interview? <laughs> it's like, oh no. I got up and I'm just remembering my dream right now. I was back where I grew up in Kansas City, which, oh boy, talk about a place that has this division. Holy cow. I, I actually uh, grew up or my I, I grew up in a couple places in Kansas because my dad changed jobs when I was a, a you know got got a new job but um, we live pretty close to a street called Troost Avenue in in Kansas City and that is really the sort of the racial dividing line of the city it just runs right through Troost Avenue and if you're white you're on one side and if you're if you're African American if you're black American you're on the other side and uh I think it's hopefully getting a little better there. I don't know. This was back. I'm older than you. So we're back in the, we're back in the eighties here. (laughs) Um, But my school that I went to was a private school that was pretty close to that area. And uh, it sort of was the big private school of the, of the town. I think it still is. And my dream was that I was in there for some reason called back with a bunch of adults who had kids in the school or were alumnus and Lindsey Graham was in there <laughs> and he was trying to tell me and I was very kind to him. I'm like, how are you, Lindsey? You know, I was like, I kind of knew him, I guess. And he's like, oh, you know, I'm like, well, what are you doing here? You're not from you're not from Kansas City. You didn't go to Pembroke. And he says, um, well, you know, I'm 51 and just married. And I'm thinking about having kids. And I just sort of looked at him like, oh, that's just like three lies right there, right? <laughs> you know, this was my dream, everybody. He just was, he was light, gaslighting to my face. This was my dream. This is, not, this is that we're reduced to now. We're dreaming this stuff. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. I have one comment about Lindsey Graham before we move on. I was thinking about this. We often say that these people have no spines, the Republicans, that they're spineless. But that guy's liver 
is really one for the ages. I have to say, they're going to put that shit in a museum when he's done. It's really kind of amazing. It is. I mean, I think there's a pretty grand old tradition of uh, of Southern male senators and uh, and the, and livers. I think that's part of the gig. If you're gonna, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So remind me, what were we talking about before my dream came in? Woke. Yes, and oh, oh, the whole thing about diversity and and and, and diversity, white yeah, to, yeah. Even though we never said the word diversity, we never said diversity, which was the word that first word that got weaponized. It, it's gonna. This is a hard road, and part of the sin is that for a huge portion of America now today, this is this is the resonance of it. Okay. The resonance of it that it's still it's still something we have to heal. It's still this grave wound on what America is, is that a huge part of our citizenry didn't come here by free will. Yeah. And are being told about an American dream that every every turn they take to try to have their piece of the American dream, they get subverted from actually having it. There's so many barriers, whether it's housing, whether it's, you know, bank loans, banking. whether it's yeah. banking is amazing. Uh, it is so horrible. Whether it's, you know, just starting your own business, that, that, that entrepreneurial uh, thrust that is America, right. Of, Oh, we're a nation of immigrants, and because immigrants are coming here looking for a better life, they're willing to do anything to have that better life, and that creates this incredible workforce and this ingenuity, right? It creates the entrepreneurship that is at the heart of American capitalism. It's at the heart of the American dream. Um, but for the but for the white folk who inherited the American dream on the backs of slaves and the family of those of those slaves who are still being kept from really truly equally seizing it uh so we can't we can't live up to the promise of america until we address this wound i do believe in reparations i think yes. we're gonna need it but that spirit that is America, that delusion that you talked about, how Americans are always falling for fantasy, right? Yeah. That we believe in this dream, that this dream is possible. And to have a whole nation of people and a history in the world be built on the fact of it's all about some dream, some vision, some idea which is inspirational and has pulled the best out of us means we're also easily duped and yeah. we dupe ourselves. We buy into lies. We force our lies onto others. Uh, and no matter how much the truth wants to come crashing in we, as Americans, we tend to just go for the fantasy because it's more comfortable and we don't want to be uncomfortable and face these uncomfortable truths. Inside of all of that is Elizabeth Friedman <laughs> and our gangsters, Meyer and Lucky. So the first episode, I got into the history of setting up the characters of 
uh, that are in this realm of mobsters and spies. I set up the original characters, Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano, and how they came together to actually organize crime. And the second episode, which your this discussion is is about and bridging into the next, was setting up Elizabeth Friedman, who is our spy in there, right? Our first spy inside organized crime uh, in that underworld. Having her eyes on it, having her ears on it, having her mind in there, really chasing them down and fucking with them in a way that was that's quite beautiful when you when you dissect how she really went after them. And she did it all as a woman in her skirt, petite woman with her skirt and with a little bit of a, a flair, right? Of her intellect. Every time she was pulled into a to some courtroom to testify against some bootlegger or some gangster, some some partner of of Luckies or Myers that got caught, she would just annihilate the the defense. She would annihilate. She just was amazing. And then she'd walk out and say goodbye, you know, and go home and and keep doing her thing and raising her kids and the way sort of only a woman to do. But that personality of hers, that spirit of hers, was the same as this believing in this dream. She would not have happened if she didn't, as a human being even, if she didn't in some way believe, wait a minute, opportunity is available to me too. As a woman in 1916, she went and pursued a college degree. She went and pursued a career. Her, she was unsatisfied with the career that was made available to her of just being a teacher. That's what you could do. You could teach or go home and have your husband work. This was it folks for women and she was unsatisfied with that she she left that job she was at already at 23 she was at the height of what she could achieve as a teacher she was the principal of a high school and she was like nope that's not for me i want something more challenging and she had the audacity to envision that for herself that she could find it that she had the capability to do that to achieve that which did not exist for her and in that pursuit for her uh, that went on her whole life, she actually formed a science. She was creating a legacy in history for all of America's um, signal intelligence, which was is at the core of our of our spy tradecraft now, and just kept reaching and reaching and reaching with her own intellectual power for the next accomplishment for herself. And while doing that was just breaking ground, I think in ways that I don't, I don't know another woman who's broke ground the way this woman has broke ground. Of all the women I've studied in American history, no, one's done, no one did what this woman did. And she couldn't even talk about it. She couldn't even, because it was a world of secrecy that she was in, she couldn't share what she was doing unless she was in a courtroom and being called it to justify. She couldn't, she was under that cloak of secrecy, under that confidentiality cloak. And then in the end, all of the credit went to her husband. And as a woman, she just had to accept that too, because that's what we accept. If we want our piece of the dream, we have to accept that we're never going to get acknowledged for it. It's a real tough pill to swallow, but that's the pill we have to swallow. It's a pill of, 
hot shit. Here's your plate of hot shit. <laughs> Eat this hot shit, lady, uh, so that you can have what you want to have in life for yourself. Um, so I know that I kind of introduced her to you. I'm really curious what your initial thoughts are on her as a character, as a writer. What are your thoughts on her? Before talking to you about this, I had never heard of her, which seems insane, given that I've been writing about this shit for four years now and looking at it a little bit. But she's yeah. somebody who should be very famous. I mean, she should be. She should be on stamps and stuff, at least. Put her face on the money, for God's sake. If, if there was a crypto, <laughs> she should have her face on cryptocurrency, really. If they, ah, I know that's that perfect. Yeah. Um, what's interesting, I mean, there's so much is interesting, but the time period when this was happening is really such a formative time period for the country. Um, this World War I period, right before, during the First World War, that war changed so much stuff in our society. And yet it's not something that people talk about nearly as much as the Second World War, for example, which is obviously we were much more involved with it in the United States than we were with World War I. And Hitler is a compelling bad guy, clearly, uh, obviously. But it was really World War I, that time period that set the tone for everything. The fact that we're on a podcast here and we're swearing, people didn't swear until after the First World War. That's when that's when people started swearing. Like, and it was okay. <laughs> wow. The lost generation came home and they were like, okay, now you can't drink anymore and you can't do this. And they were like, oh, okay, fuck you. We're gonna fucking curse then. The word lousy was invented during that time because the blankets had lice in them. They were lousy. And therefore, Ooh. lousy became a word. The word basket case was a word that derives from the First World War when people had their arms and legs blown off and they had to be carried out in a basket, their remains, even though they were still alive. That's what a basket case is. Wow. Bad stuff. There was bad, there was chemical weapons happened during the war that were really, really awful that have not been repeated since because it was so bad and nobody knew what they were doing yet. And then Spy stuff didn't really exist on this level yet, right? Not in this country, not elsewhere. There were there were services, there were uh, intelligence services or things that approximate that. Ivan the Terrible invented the, the secret state police in Russia in the 1590s or whatever it was. So this was, might have even been earlier than that. This stuff has been around for a long time, but not in this kind of manner. And here somebody comes along at this incredibly important time, right at the beginning of all this stuff. She can't even vote yet. Women couldn't vote in this country until That's 1920, right. which is also insane and something that much more of a big deal should be made of. So that's part of it. But getting back to what you asked me at the beginning about history and knowledge of history, some of the themes that we're feeling right now about disinformation, about the role of the media and how the me media helps shape narratives that are not true, was happening at that time, okay? Fox News is not new. During the Spanish-American War, the Hearst newspapers were sort of the Fox News of the day, kind of tabloidy, and they wanted to do all this stuff. They wanted to sell scandal and um, controversy and war. So the Spanish-American War basically started because these newspapers kept drumming up um, 
conflict the threat of Spain, which Spain wanted no part of us. They wanted nothing to do with us. But <laughs> the everybody thought they did because of the papers. Remember the Maine and this and that. And then we went to war with Spain. And I think we had the opportunity to annex Cuba and we should have and did not. But that's another story. We got the Philippines after that from, you know, the, all this stuff happened because of the Spanish-American War that I don't even think anybody even gets. This is right before the turn of the century. Then it goes into the, the First World War, the Zimmerman Memo, okay? Yeah, let's talk about that Zimmerman Memo. The Zimmerman Memo, which I think by this point in the podcast people understand, is a memo written by Arthur Zimmerman, who was the German ambassador to Mexico, and he wrote a memo to the Mexican government. And at the time, there was lots of tension between Mexico and the United States. There was revolutions going on there. Pershing was going into Mexico to kind of chase down people. It was just a bad, it was one of the periods where tensions were hot at the border. And what we really needed was Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham at the border in, in camo gear. <laughs> that would have that would have saved the day. But this that's was a time I of- That's why I dreamed about them. Are those pictures did. on that boat. That's I can't why you did. But there was a lot of tension uh, between Mexico and the United States. And again, going back in history a little bit, during uh, the presidency of James K. Polk, comma, easily the most influential president we've ever had in terms of territory added. If you yeah. look at a map of before and after, your jaw will drop at the amount of territory that he- Texas, New Mexico, California, or like all of it. It's just like, oh, wow, we have this now? Yeah, that was all Polk. So we took that from Mexico in one of the, the kind of weird wars. That Mexico had a lot of governments going on. So there was tension from that. But during the beginning times um, of the First World War, also known as the Great War, also known as the 1418 War in Britain, um, during this time, there was more tension than usual. And the memo promised was Germany promising to Mexico that if they entered the war as allies to Germany and attack the United States, which would draw us away from Europe to defend, and, and they won, they would be given Texas, New Mexico, and California. Arizona. Arizona, excuse me. Four states, that, yeah. Yeah, that was the promise of, of the memo. So- First of all, good luck with that. Second of all, the memo came out. It was it was leaked. And it originally came out because the British intercepted it and cracked the code. But the That's British right. didn't want everybody to know that they cracked the code. So the story began to leak out. And this is what I'm getting about with fake news. The Hearst newspapers promoted the idea, the fake idea, the disinformation idea that it was a forgery, that British intelligence had created this forgery to entice Americans to go to war uh, because that's what, that's what the British wanted. And at the time, the immigrant wave that happened then were mostly Irish and Germans right. in this country. That's who was going to fight the war. People who were first generation or second generation Irish and German Americans. The German Americans did not want to go to war against Germany. The Irish Americans didn't go, want to go to war for Great Britain, right? So you had a population in the country very, very reluctant to do this. And the Germans figured this out, created this disinformation campaign, which William Randolph Hearst newspapers just printed like it was, you know, yeah. just like it was true, just like Fox News does today. So again, 
None of this shit is new. This has been going on for over a hundred years. Okay. Now, just to wrap up the tie a bow on the media part of this, after the Spanish-American War and this time period, people wisened up to the fact that the Hearst newspapers were bullshit and that the New York Times was not because the Times said, we're just going to report the news and that's it. We're not going to have a bias. We're not going to have a slant. It's just going to be news. That's That's our model. And people liked that. And that's why the New York Times became successful. And that's why it was successful for the last, you know, 100 plus years. Because as a, here, th- this should appeal to the free market conservatives listening to this show, because the business model worked better. People wanted the truth. They didn't want bullshit lies. That's it. That was the business model. And I predict, based on my knowledge of history, that the same thing is going to happen with Fox News eventually. Once enough people figure out, once there's enough damage that people feel has been done to them by listening to this shit, they're going to pull the plug on it if Dominion doesn't beat them to it. So, yeah, I'm I think it's again, it's going to be that maybe this is also part of the struggle of being an American is that we do as a people want to be self-determinant. Right. So it's give it's that entrepreneurial side of us of give us the straight shit so that we can make our own choices. You don't need to tell us how to think or what to do, but we require cold, hard facts so that we can just, you know, move on with our lives and make the right. Let let me make the decision of my own life. But I can't do that if you're if you're hiding all this shit. Right. So that's the. That's part of being American. And then the other part is, I want the fantasy. <laughs> Give me the dream. <laughs> I believe in it. I can be a celebrity and I can I can look like Kim Kardashian with just enough surgery. It's going to work out for me. And then I'll be an Instagram star and I'll be very famous and wealthy and whatever. Right. That's what it is now. So it, that's a, that's another clashing struggle of what it is to be an American mm-hmm. now. I wanted you to tell that story. Let's also tell, I, I love it when you tell the story of how we got into, how World War I started, not how we got into it. We know we got into it because of the Zimmerman memo, but that Elizabeth helped decode and confirm. Um, but what, uh, w- w- there's a scene in a bar, right? Yeah. The, there are some moments in history where it just sort of makes you think that everything happens for a reason and things are preordained in some crazy cosmic way that we are in some sort of simulation. And the beginning of world war one was absolutely one of those times. So what happened is you had the Austro-Hungarian empire, which was Austria, Hungary, Czech Republic, that whole big swath of land in, in central and Eastern Europe. It's all controlled by these, uh, the Habsburgs mostly, right? They'd been in charge for a long time. But over the years and the centuries, less and less land, more division, people spoke different languages, wanted independence. It wasn't going to hold for that much longer. It was on its way out. So was the Ottoman Empire, stuff like that. So was the the, the German king, um, the Hohenzollern, House Hohenzollern. All this stuff is on the way out. But in uh, Sarajevo, in Serbia, Bosnia, and the Balkans, There were these movements for independence where they wanted to get away from, you know, cast off the oppressive yoke of these royals and do their thing. 
And there was a group of people called the Black Hand, which I know is also a term yeah, gonna... in, 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 your, in your mob. And I don't know if it's the same thing or if it's just they just thought the word, the name was cool and they took it. But it's this underground group of anarchists, terrorists, whatever you want to call them, operating in Eastern Europe, mostly in Serbia. They killed a bunch of people. They killed this movement. One of the czars of Russia, Alexander II, got assassinated. They killed the king of Greece, George I, and they killed the king of Serbia. Um, I can't remember his name. Right around the time period, going from late 1800s into the early 1900s. Now, fast forward to 1914. I think it's uh, June, what, 28th? Something. I can't remember the exact day. It's June of, of, of uh, 1914, Sarajevo. Uh, you know, Yugoslavia, whatever. There's a plot to kill the Archduke, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who's the heir to the throne, the Austro-Hungarian throne, is visiting Sarajevo. If you look at a picture of the guy, he's got the bushy mustache and he's got the the, the, the <laughs> helmet with the point on it. He looks yeah, like yeah. A, a, you know, Cartoon. like from the, from the Nutcracker yeah. or something. Like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's him and his wife and they're going to this thing and there's a group of guys that are trying to do the assassination. And one of them throws a bomb off the overpass into the car as it's going. It goes off too late. It blows up the wrong car. They realize, the security detail realize that, the, uh, that there's danger. So they make a detour. And this guy, uh, Princep, Gavrilo Princep, who's one of the assassins, is like, shit, that's it. It's over. We, we screwed up. You know, it didn't work. So he went to like a delicatessen to get a sandwich and drown his sorrows. And while he's there, the motorcade of the Archduke is now going to the hospital to see people that had been hurt in this attack when the right. bomb went off, which is actually a good thing to do, by the way. Yeah. And the driver makes, who is not from Sarajevo, makes a wrong turn and they have to turn around on this, this is big stupid limousine. And again, this isn't, this is a long time ago. The roads are not great. Right. So they're trying to turn around. Princip walks out of the delicatessen and literally the limo is in front of him. With, <laughs> it's a convertible limousine. Yeah, it's not a limo. I say limo. It's a convertible car. It's a car, both yeah. sitting there unguarded and he's like wait what so he takes his gun he goes over not only does he shoot them both he kills them both which again is no guarantee because it's not like he was some army guy the gun yeah. could have misfired anything could have happened but he does manage to kill both of them that one event set off the entire clusterfuck of stuff world war one that happened yeah that created the war, which was first Austro-Hungary is like to Serbia, what are you doing? You know, we're going to go in there and investigate this. Serbia says, oh, no, you're not. This is an internal thing. We'll take care of it. And they give them an ultimatum. Well, if you don't do this in 24 hours or whatever it was, we're going to declare war on you. And Serbia refuses. So Austro-Hungary declares war on Serbia. 
then Russia is obligated by treaty to come to the defense of Serbia. And then everybody declares war on everybody else. And the next thing you know, (laughs) Britain's in the war and it's crazy. And Next thing you know, we're ga- we're gassing. People are being gassed. They're being carried yeah. around in baskets, and uh, and Germany's offering four of our states to Mexico uh, so that America is kept out of the fray. Ger- uh, Germany, because- which didn't even had which had nothing to do with the start of the war at all. I know. It, it was an ancillary <laughs> power into the thing, and then suddenly they're in the middle of of it, and they're like, "Wait, what? Why? Why am I yeah. doing this?" You know. Um, yeah. So and. and America did not get involved with the war until 1917, which was pretty late. Yeah. Started in 14. We're not there until 17. And really, we did help win that war because at that point, it was it was a stalemate. Everybody was exhausted. And just the fresh troops were able to come in and, and, and sort of win the day. People don't realize American troops were in Siberia uh, during the war because what also happened... Okay, in First World War, is that Russia got into the war. Nicholas II, the Tsar, who was a good father and a complete flop as a military guy, insisted on running the army, failed miserably. And then the revolution happened, and he and his Russia pulled out of the war. Bolsheviks took over, and they were uh, all executed. Famously, the Romanov family ending the entire, uh, you know, royal line of, of Russia. So that happened during the first report. So again, these events have this incredible ripple effect. The yeah. aftermath of the war, the Treaty of Versailles, Germany is forced to pay reparations to um, the victors of the war and can't. They have a um, this uh, on the river there, the um, the Rhine. They have this manufacturing center, and France had had. Um, occupied it at the end of the war and all this stuff happened. Germany goes through this period of intense hyperinflation because they tried to just print money to pay the war debt and that didn't work. And it was the the kind of thing where restaurants would have to write the prices of the menu in chalk because they changed by the hour because the, the hyperinflation was so drastic that to pay $5 for something, by the end of the day, you would pay $500,000. I mean, it just kept going up at some ridiculous uh, rate. And because of all the financial turmoil, because that's hyperinflation is a horrible thing. You see it now in Venezuela where the currency is worthless. It happened in Zimbabwe in the 90s. where South Africa. Yeah, not not so bad in South Africa, but Zimbabwe is the place. Famously, they printed Mm -hmm. $100 trillion banknotes in Zimbabwe, the the largest banknote ever issued. Immediately became worthless. So when you have that kind of trauma, that economic trauma, on top of the fact that they had lost the war and thought they were going to win the war, psychologically, so much damage. That's how Hitler was able to go in right. and, and seize power by saying, no, we're going to buckle up. We're Germans, damn it. We're better than this. And yeah, so all of that happened because Princip shot the guy coming out of the deli. Okay? Yeah. After <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It is the butterfly flapping the wings when you can get down to these. I do think that these it's so important to try to dissolve everything down to simple human moments. There's so many of them throughout our history and so many of these, uh, you know, whether you want to be a fatalist or not, that these these things happen with the person being in a very specific place at a very specific time and it just changes history 
So back to Elizabeth and what, what we talked about in this episode that you're coming in between and bridging to the next episode, and we'll get into that black hand, um, is that she was working so furiously because she had finally found the thing she was really gifted at. She finally found it while at Riverbank decrypting these, all of the messages of that the, the U.S. once we were into the war that are, it was called the War Department, it wasn't even the Department of Defense yet, but everything that the War Department and other law enforcement agencies in the United States, every single, every single law enforcement agency we had and, and service agency we had that was intercepting communications around that war, every single one of those interceptions was decoded by Elizabeth. Everyone for, a, a, it was eight months solid. It was her and her husband and they did the whole thing. They were, they were the signal intelligence. What is an entire agency now where these two people who were falling in love, uh, doing something that had never been done before, really the way they were doing it and writing down how they were doing it as they were doing it. Cause they knew they were, they just knew it was historic, I think. And I, that's such a, also another rare thing for and. In, as a human experience is to know that what you're in the middle of, you can't quite tell yet how important it is, how big it is. You just know it's new. You're yeah. doing something new. You're, and you're figuring out information, uh, a science almost for her and for William. You're it's like a moment of discovery, right? Uh, while at the same time, understanding it's, gonna be historic you don't quite know yet how or why but you're in the process of that great discovery that great unearthing of something new and establishing you know really shifting uh, a history in the moment that's going to affect the way the world operates and the world order from there on out i don't know that they knew the weight of that moment, if they had all of that, but I gotta believe there was a sensation in there of, wow, we're, it, we're doing something in the moment that's, that is changing, right? That is about change, that it, things will never go back to the way they were now that we're doing this, the way we're doing it now. And because it was just two of them doing it, it was, an, and it was a tremendous amount of work. I don't know that there was a moment for that reflection. The part of this that I really wanted to talk to you about was, and we and we had this conversation recently, um, actually on a show together, but we haven't talked about it all that much, is you and I, right from the very beginning, 2016, 2017, were in all of the messaging that was going on. We came to Twitter not because we wanted to or that we would, I mean, I had an account. I never used it. I didn't know. And then, but that, that former guy got into office. We knew he was who he was in a broad sense and maybe so had some details on him, but could tell that, oh, holy cow, especially as it started to become revealed that 
Yes, there has been an FBI investigation into his campaign. Yes, it was. We had 17 intel chiefs sitting there telling us before, in, in October, I think it was, before um, the election of 2016, that Russia was trying to interfere in our elections and that they were the ones behind the hacking of the DNC and that this wasn't some fake news. This wasn't something that could have just been anybody, that there real were real facts on the ground. And, there, and we dove in and started trying to piece together what this whole thing was. And we helped each other. And you wrote a book. I think your book was one of the first books you wrote. And it was a, a, a fast little novel that you that you uh, boy, you burn that thing off so quick, but it holds up to this day when we didn't really have any confirmation on any of this. We had, didn't have the Mueller report, we hadn't been out, and that was not anywhere near as significant as the Senate um, volume, volume five, five. Of, of, the, of the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee report. So, uh, and that book was Dirty Rubles. And, but there we were together and we found, we got to know each other from that. And the experience really was, oh, wait, you have this piece of information? Okay, I have this piece of information over here. And then it really was a collection of us. And there was, it wasn't as many people now as I look back on it as I thought it was, but each one of us, there's probably about 15 of us. And each one of us had a circle of other people that were helping us with information. And we just, in the, in the great wide open, without thinking about what we were doing, we just pieced it all together. There isn't anything found in any of the any, later on now that we didn't in some way unpack. Even the stuff that we were theorizing about, we theorized it and we put it out there. Okay, this is what makes sense. Here's a scenario that I could see, you know, oh, the guy walked out of the deli and there was the guy and he just shot him. It was like that. It was like reducing everything down to that moment. And for me, it was the world of organized crime uh, that was around that character that was our president, but also more people. This isn't about the politics of any of that or even about him as an individual. It was, wow, what, how did the Russians actually get in to our underworld in such a specific way? There were hooks in there. You couldn't look at what was happening in 2016 with that attack from the Kremlin in my mind, and not try to figure out the history of that, that there were hooks and tentacles that they had in into us that we had stopped paying attention to because we assumed, but what, because Reagan said, you know, and Bush, his, his successor said, tear down the wall, right? Or, you know, Mr. Mr. Gorbachev, where they were speaking to him and all of a sudden the Berlin Wall comes down. Somehow that had to do with the KGB not being the KGB anymore. It just all was... Again, this fantasy of oh yeah. everything's fine now. We're we're there. We'll they're going to be capitalists suddenly, and everything will be fine. And the truth, as we as we've discovered, is nope. Russia never stopped being our aggressor, being our enemy, trying to take us over. They just never stopped. They were just doing it in the dark, in the underworld, right? So any of that? Do you, did you feel what was that? Looking back on that time where we, you, we were unpacking that and you were writing about it, what does it feel like now is my question. Good question. Um, for me, I think it was different than you because you knew things. I didn't know anything. I was just trying to figure it out. 
And not to in any way remotely compare myself to Elizabeth Friedman, but what you said before about figuring out what she was good at, what I learned during this time period is that I'm really good at looking at a bunch of disparate things and weaving them together into a narrative that people can understand. And I have always been good at that. And I just assumed that everybody was, could do it. But in fact, most people can't. And that, that's what yeah. I learned. So I learned during this that I actually have a skill that I didn't even know existed or was important that during this time period turned out to be useful to the, to the effort. And that's what my book that you mentioned, and thank you for citing it, Dirty Rules, um, that's what I was trying to write. I wanted to write a, a simple, short primer on what the deal was because yeah. the media never does this. They, they've, I, I remember complaining about it in high school. They, they, they assume, as when you're a soap opera, they assume that you know already the main storylines. They never stop and say, let me first, before you watch the soap opera, let me explain what's going on and who all the characters are. They don't give you right. an overview. They suck at that and they always have. So what I wanted to do was provide an overview and just say, this is what's happening. Let's go back and look at what's happening. Let's go back and review stuff that he just did six months ago that we've forgotten about in the chaos because he's a, he's a, he's, he's a locomotive spewing shit and the media had to chase after him. And I understand that, but there was so much there to unpack that it was necessary and remains necessary to keep going back and keep reviewing what happened because every time we do it, we learn stuff, especially now that we're a little bit closer to, to um, whatever, to a different moment, the understanding deepens. Post-insurrection, I think my understanding of what was happening has changed. I think I would write the book differently now knowing how awful the Republicans were because the one mistake that I made at that time in 16, 17, I really thought when I started doing this that if the Republicans knew what Trump was up to with Russia, that they would be appalled. I really thought that that was the case and I was wrong. I was completely wrong. I did not know that they were behind it. They were just as guilty, if not more. Oh, they installed him. Yeah, yeah, that's my, I, I that's didn't. my lie. <laughs> he, he was installed and, and they installed him. It, it's there's not it, I don't care if they were holding their nose and that, that doesn't absolve anything. You cannot convince me now that if the Koch brothers didn't want him in there, he he would have he wouldn't be in there. He wouldn't have gotten in. There's a the, the power centers. They they didn't just step out and say, oh, we can't control this. They had a tremendous amount of control. There was so much you could put about, out about this guy that would have stopped it. Yeah. There were narratives to tell. Uh, the press had all of that in their archives. That was one of the stunning things, I think, for both of us is like, well, shit, here it all is. Here's here's this guy as a money launderer for for organized crime. It's it's he's a business front for them. And it, it's all there in the press's own archives. But as you said, that narrative didn't come to us. There wasn't, there weren't storytellers willing to tell those stories. And when we started to tell them, they did stick. So I'm also not convinced that it wouldn't have stuck if someone hadn't put the effort forward to try to make it stick. You had a couple journalists here or there try and, and they're like, no, we reported on this. It's like, no, you actually really, you really didn't. You really didn't. 
do it in a fulsome way. There was no commitment to educate the greater American population on who this man was and what his history was. His history was completely uh, overlooked. It, it, it was, here's the personality. We're going to give it this one defining principle and go forward. So that when people and you, like you and I were like, oh, no, 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 no. Here's the history. Here's the history. You know where I found this history? I found it in New York Times archive. It's a shame you guys couldn't fucking talk about it. But I found it. Here we go. Everyone read this article from, you know, 1987 or whatever. Um, that, that idea that we were telling a history and we were giving a context that the broader media was refusing to do. It's not that they couldn't do it. They were refusing to do it. Led us into that space that I'm sure Elizabeth and William were in quite a lot of people looking at you like you're nuts um, uh, when yeah. you tried to share it. And I kept hearing that one phrase of over and over from people. Well, when, when though, when are we going to learn this? When are we going to learn it? I'm like, I just showed you it. it. It's we learned this years ago. Here it is. But when? When is it going to be in the public? When? When? It, when is this going to come out? What do you mean, come out? I would it's say, out. What, what are you talking about? It's out. But when? <laughs> I just would keep getting that. But when? I'm like, what are you? What I didn't understand. What other people were waiting for. Okay, I want to answer the black hand thing. Um, so you you asked me this a while back because I was talking about the black hand, and you're like, "Wait a minute!" I, and this was a couple, maybe even a year or so ago, and I, I I don't, or maybe it was more recent. I had put out a big thread on Twitter about uh, Carlos Marcello and the black hand and and connecting all that. So in organized crime, and we're going to get to this in the next episode. In organized crime, that there in the South. It's people don't tend to think of organized crime being down in the South, but it was really huge in the South. You know, they tend to think of organized crime because of the of the movies, of the fantasies, right, that came before uh, from the from the great storytellers. And they were amazing storytellers um, have told all these mob movies and mob books. But so much of that is just you know, it might as well have come out of Hearst, right? Because it's this, all these romanticized notions of what the mafia uh, what it is or was, is that it was like, okay, they only, they only put their violence on one another. No, they, they, it, it was a violent attack on the communities and those communities were largely immigrant communities. Um, and they were terrorizing. They, these were terrorists, the extortion rackets alone right, were, were a form of terror. They scared you uh, if you were a shop owner, if you had a small business, again, in these immigrant neighborhoods. So we're talking about Italian immigrants, Irish immigrants, um, German immigrants were, were big as well, uh, this, the uh, Jewish immigrants, right? So in the communities where a lot of them were mixed together and then they had their, their divisions within those immigrant communities, uh, that the shop owners, that the businesses would get extorted and terrorized. And how you knew in the South, in Carlos Marcello was New Orleans, in that territory was, and this this predated Lansky and Luciano. This was part of those sort of mustache peats that I talk about uh, that were up North. This was that version down South, is that they would uh, put 
black ink on their on, on a hand and put that handprint on an extortion letter or on on the front of your of your storefront so that you understood you're going to have to pay your tribute if you want this business or we're going to burn the business down. So it was part of the prote- quote unquote protection racket. And here's how the protection racket works. And this part in the stories, you Goodfellows had a great storyline of this, right? It's like the restaurant owner realizes he has to get in business with the mob boss. He's got no choice. He needs to get in. And, and what the mob boss is going to do then is squeeze everything they can squeeze out of that business. And then when they're done, uh, just burn it down and get the insurance money. That your your whole life's work, you're coming to this country as a, with the American dream, being an entrepreneur, you're going to build your little business, you're going to work hard, you're going to be able to provide for your children, you're going to have uh, enough money to retire, hopefully someday, and you just want this sort of modest life of, of being a shop owner or a restaurateur or something, and in comes the these fuckers, right? <laughs> these criminals coming in, and they're telling you, well, if you want your business to survive, you need our protection. We're going to keep you safe. They, they're not, and everyone knows they're not telling you that the person they're saying they're to keep you safe from is themselves, right? Is there is there, that's a terrorist, right? We're going to keep you safe. And so you got to pay us 10, 15, 30%, whatever the tribute is to, uh, to offer you the protection and we'll protect your business. And this is what immigrants were forced to do. So, and they also had to keep really quiet. And that's why they allowed these criminal gangs to thrive and grow from within their own immigrant communities. These were their brothers and their uncles and their cousins that were doing this, right? Uh, it just was part of that time in the, at the turn of the century with that big immigrant wave that had come. So that's what the Black Hand was. That's why they were called the Black Hand. And it, w- it was this sort of really a lot of it around New Orleans and around the ports there because they were that end up bringing the, you know, there's import businesses and everything. And then for our gangsters that I'm focusing on in this series that really organized everything on a nation basis and then a transnational basis, which were which were Lucky and Meyer, um, they had rolled up all the mustache peats and taken over those operations. But when it came to the black hand, they found it better to partner so they partnered with the Black Hand Mafia. They didn't assassinate these guys. They didn't, um, mostly because uh, it would. I don't know that they thought that they would win that war. <laughs> <laughs> I think they thought they could take out the mustache piece, but you're not taking down Marcello. You're not. You're not, and his predecessors. You're just if you not. You can't beat them. Join them. Joined up. They joined forces, and um, and uh, and we see a lot of. Um, uh, with the czar uh, going away and the Bolsheviks coming in, there actually was quite an infiltration up into our crime syndicates um, from that black hand piece as well, which is a really fascinating history we're going to get into. But I hope that answers. Now, did they, I don't know about the black hand over, <laughs> over in your history, in the World War I history. It was certainly happening at the same time. Um, so I don't know if they just borrowed that saying i have no idea i only know where it came from when it comes to our mafia was because they were actually putting that black handprint on people's doors maybe maybe somebody else independent it was like leibniz and, and isaac newton independently coming up with the idea of calculus you know putting a black hand on a box or something is 
maybe it's not the most creative thing in the world to do. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Here's what I do know is after Elizabeth and William did that great work in World War One, he went into the into the army um, and really became part of government service uh, and was pulled away from her in terms of their collaboration. And he missed her terribly because he really did need her mind to keep him balanced. Uh, even He was brilliant. He really was. I don't want to take anything away from William and his contributions to signal intelligence and, and to cryptanalysis. Uh, he, was a, he was a giant, but it was her, it was her mind and her emotional stability that allowed an entire agency and our, all of our intelligence um, to evolve to what it is today. She, she was the anchor um, for him and for, and, and for history. What she did when he went into, after between these two world wars, um, before she went into World War II, and while William was doing very, very secret stuff for, for our government that he couldn't even share with her, what she did was she started decoding all of the intercepts, everything that was being intercepted at over radio that was done in code by these, uh, by the ships being run by the Black Hand and being run by Meyer. <laughs> so she's, we, I've been teased that quite a bit, but our next episode, we're going to get into Elizabeth and these gangsters and how she took them down. It's quite something. I can't wait. I know. Thank you so much, Greg Oliar, for, for spending time with me and, sharing all of that. I'm just, I'm really pleased. I know everyone you can read how Greg speaks, he writes. And it, that's a, such a, a, such a gift uh, as a writer, I think, if for an audience to have a writer that talks the same way that they write. Um, it just, you really have one of those great voices and um, that's brought so much into my life and is, and has helped me with my writing. It really has. Um, and, just the friendship has meant so much to me. So you can find Greg's writing on his site, Prevail. Uh, and you have, can you tell everybody about the schedule of when you put out your newsletter? You can sign up for the newsletter and then the writing comes right into your email, which I like, or on Twitter or on Facebook, it comes in. Um, so that's on On Tuesday, Tuesdays and on Sunday. Friday, Tuesday, Friday are the pieces. Um, Sunday is the Sunday pages, which is kind of the literary thing where I'm, I write a little more personal take on things. And then yeah. the podcast also drops on Friday. Okay. And the podcast is just, it's also brings in your sense of humor, which is there present in your writing, but it's, <laughs> it's something different the way you put your podcast together. So it, it is actually, it the one of the big things, I think Elizabeth and William found this as well. I know she did. As we're sort of walking through this the horror of the moment trying to save our democracy um it just for everyone to have a sense of humor just try to keep a hold of <laughs> some light and levity i laugh a lot because there's a ridiculousness to everything that we're going through that i think it's worthy of just laughing at it but it does help and so your podcast for me is that it's sort of that salve on my brain of like oh, okay now we can laugh about some of this stuff um, so I do, I do mean that when I say I can't talk to you right now because I'm listening to my podcast. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thanks, Greg. All right. Thanks for coming on. Sure. The World Beneath is a production of Imperative Entertainment, created and written by me, LB. 
Our executive producer is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering is by Shane Freeman. Editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. The World Beneath is a five-season series, with each season consisting of 10 narrative episodes and 10 sit-down interviews. You are listening to season one, Treasure. Narrative episodes publish Monday morning and are sit-down episodes on Thursdays, wherever you find your shows. Or binge the entire season now on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at the handle at Lincoln's Bible. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.